You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. Today's cool fact of the day is that a normal adult, by the way, you don't want to be normal. You want to be better than normal, right? But a normal adult has about 50 billion fat cells. That means there are more fat cells in one human body than there are people on the earth. Uh, the good news is that the number of fat cells doesn't increase as you age. The bad news is that they just get bigger. They can get to be up to about 10 times their normal size. Today's guest is Dr. Sylvia Terra. She's on a mission to educate the world about fat as a body part that's just misunderstood. And after years of research and interviewing with physicians and patients and scientists, sounds familiar, the same kind of thing that I did. Uh, for, for Bulletproof, just learning from all the top experts in the field is, is one of the most profound things you can do. She put together this book that has a scientific point of view on the purpose of fat and how you can beat fat, or at least beat the parts of it you don't want. So I would call her a fat hacker. Uh, welcome to the show, Sylvia. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. Why do you see fat as an organ system? Yeah, so I think fat is very different than what we think of it as. Uh, you know, we think of it as this reserve of calories, and we have to get rid of it at all costs. But really, you know, fat is an organ, meaning that it releases hormones that the rest of our body really depends on. 
Um, for example, fat can release a hormone called leptin that I know you write about as well. And leptin has profound effects on our body. It affects, uh, you know, not just our weight, not just our metabolism and our appetite, but it affects our brain size. It affects our bones. It even affects our reproductive system, you know, for women particularly. So it has profound effects all over. It also uh, makes adiponectin, another hormone. Um, and estrogen, which is very important, of course, for women's health. And so fat is doing a lot more in your body than you think it is. And I think when I did this research, and I, I started this research because I had so much trouble managing weight, and I really wanted to get to the bottom of it. And so I spent five years really pulling out all kinds of uh, papers out of the scientific literature. I think I read about a 1,000 in all, probably even more, interviewed about 50 leading researchers around the world. And what I found was just so astounding. And as I found more about fat, how sophisticated it actually is, how it really functions as an organ, how our body depends on our fat, that's when I thought I have to really capture this and write a book about everything I learned. And so, uh, you know, it is, it is very enlightening to really find out what fat is about. When I weighed 300 pounds, I had more estrogen and less testosterone than my mom. <laughs> Because fat does exactly what you said. It makes yeah. estrogen the more, or the bigger your fat is, not necessarily the more cells you have, but just the bigger they are, the more estrogen you make. And also yeah. in women, that can be a problem as well, though, because you need estrogen if you go super low fat, like like the super lean, you know, I, I can see my abs and my veins sort of look. What does that do to the hormone systems in a woman? Yeah, so your fat has to be at the right level. You really can't have too much or too little. So when, when women lose too much fat, and you see this with athletes, ballerinas, and runners, they don't have enough of that real functional estrogen that helps them reproduce, and they start to lose their menstrual cycle. Um, and it's funny because women can actually turn it on and off their menstrual cycles with about three pounds. Like that's how sensitive your body is to the right amount of fat. So you need leptin for reproduction. Um, you know, our, our, the ovaries actually have receptors for both estrogen and leptin. And then you also, uh, if you have too much fat, you're getting too much estrogen, and that's throwing the balance off as well. So fat, in a way, it's a kind of indicator of what your environment is, and it's almost a signal to your body that the environment is right for reproducing. If there's not enough fat, something's amiss. There's not enough nourishment in the environment to bring in a newborn. But again, if someone's not caring for themselves and they're gorging themselves and putting on way too much weight, then that's also an indicator that something's not quite right here. So really, you have to think about fat just like you would any other organ, like your heart or your lungs, you know, your colon or liver. Is it, is it healthy? It's not, do we have as little of it as we can possibly have? Do we have the right amount? And are we keeping our fat healthy as well? When I first met my wife, um, Lana, who's a a physician trained at the Karolinska Institute, and now she runs a fertility coaching practice. When I met her, she was infertile, and she was uh, very low fat. And it wasn't necessarily by choice. She'd always been low fat ever since she did a 10-day water fast as a teenager. It, it did something to her body, and she couldn't put weight on to save her life. Hmm. So I did some tweaks on her diet using anti-aging things. This was before Bulletproof existed and ended up doing several years of research with 1,300 papers on how to turn her fertility back on. She had to put on 20 pounds. And she likes the 20 pounds because it all went to you know the butt, the hips, and, and the boobs, which is what a fertile woman looks like versus that like super lean thing that she had before. Uh, and she, I remember she's like, wow, I'm warm now. And when I sit down, there's padding before it used to like hurt to sit because she was so thin. And it, it was, mm -hmm. you know, she looked good, but she also was aware that maybe she was too low on the spectrum, which a lot of women are like, I wish I was her. But it wasn't comfortable for her. 
What's the range of body fat for women? Like, what percentage of body fat do you consider to be within uh, within like the optimal ranges for just for feeling really good? Yeah, so I mean, it varies. I think around 25, 30% or so for women um, is kind of what the, the tables and the norms yeah. tell us. But, you know, I also think that there's, like you said, there's variation. And, uh, you know, you can have a little bit more than that. Sometimes it matters where is your fat stored. So, of course, if you have a lot of visceral fat, um, that's going to be less healthy. So, you know, not all fat is created equal. There's subcutaneous fat, which is a type that we talk about. It's right under the skin. It's in, like, you, you know, you say your wife has in your buttocks and your thighs, you know, in your abdomen. But then there's also fat that's underneath the stomach wall. That's visceral fat. And that's the type that tends to be get inflamed. Uh, it tends to affect insulin signaling. It gets crowded. It sends out a distress signal, um, which causes that inflammation. And so that's the type that is correlated with diabetes and with heart disease. And so if you have it there, you know, it's very unhealthy. If you have it in other areas, you can actually be somewhat above that range, honestly, that fat range and still be fit, but a little bit heavy. And I, I did give an example of sumo wrestlers who are exactly an example of fit but fat. So, I'm, you know, of course, sumos are obese. Anyone would, would uh, categorize them as obese. But they exercise six to seven hours a day. And interestingly, exercise promotes the release of adiponectin, which is another hormone produced by fat. And adiponectin actually helps clear triglycerides out of our blood and it puts it in the subcutaneous fat tissue, which is a safe storage of fat. And uh, because sumos exercise so much, all that fat you see is actually subcutaneous fat. It's not really visceral fat. And so they're surprisingly metabolically healthy. And, uh, you know, when they retire and they come off that reg uh, regimen, they actually get metabolically unhealthy fairly quickly. So, you know, they're a, a prime example of fit but fat. And so we can talk about fat ranges and, uh, you know, how much fat is healthy, but it really does depend on where it's stored. Um, you know, there's another category of fat of overfat. I've just been reading about this where people look quite normal, but they have high percentages of fat. Mm -hmm. But again, depending on where that fat is, they might actually be okay having a little bit extra. I, I did a, a, a bunch of really high-end imaging of my body. I, we did MRI, we did mm -hmm. DEXA scans and, and all that. And my liver was slightly less than 3% fat, which is, which is good. Because one of the concerns I've been doing unlimited amounts of butter every day yeah. <laughs> for a very long time based on research and based on science. But there's that nagging question in the back of your mind, like, oh my God, am I going to die? So I've done the calcium score. Like, I've done everything I can think of and all of yeah. the markers are like phenomenal. And the insulin sensitivity is as good as it gets and glucose tolerance is good. And my visceral fat was not a problem. The DEXA said I was 20% body fat, the impedance, that super high-end hospital-grade stuff said I was 15.3%, and my normal range for anti-aging for men is 15 to 20. Does that correspond with what you, you've seen in your research that maybe men should be shooting for if they want to you know, not necessarily look like Wolverine, but you want to you know, live a long time and have lots of energy? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, I think that's that's the you know fat that's enormous considered healthy. Um, but it sounds like to me you've probably been eating healthy. You've probably been eating low carbs, so although you're having lots of fat, you're not having a lot of sugars with that too. And I think the problem really comes when people try to combine both. They have high fat and they have high sugar, yeah. right? So something like a cheesecake, right? There's there's nothing healthy about it because you're getting sugar, which is provoking insulin, right? And then it's going to take all those fats and, and put it into your fat, right? And it's not going to be as healthy. So I, I think you could try either end of the spectrum. And, and part of what's important to remember is that not, there's not one diet that fits everybody, really. Like, and I know people who went on a pasta diet and they lost weight. I know people who do ketogenic or very low carb and they lose weight too. 
Um, you can't really combine the two, so you can pick something on the spectrum that works for you. But again, you have to find something that that you know fits your your life, right? So it fits you biologically. Mm-hmm. Number one, you are losing weight on it, but also it's a diet you can stay on for the very long term as well. And I think people have different psychological needs for a diet. There's certain foods I know I really want to have, and I find diets that don't have them. I end up not staying on those diets very what's, long. Which, what's your top food in that category? I, you know, I got to say, I like a little bit of sugar here and there, and I've done ketogenic. I've done it a couple of times. What I've noticed is that I, I tend to come off after a while because I really want that. And I don't want sucralose. I don't want something phony. Oh, I want terrible. real sugar. <laughs> and so because of that, um, I've done it twice and I've lost weight. They work those diets, those ketogenic diets, I'll, I'll be the first to admit. But I find for my lifestyle, my psychology, <laughs> I, I like a little bit more variation. What I did find works for me is uh, intermittent fasting, actually, yeah. because I find that the hours that I do eat, I can be a little flexible. It doesn't quite matter so much as long as I do that overnight fast. And I, and I know you write about this too. Intermittent fasting is great for all kinds of things. I mean, certainly the growth hormone peak, you know, where you're extending that a little bit, um, you know, getting more, I, I find I sleep better, you know, so yeah. that also affects ghrelin and leptin and other hormones too. And so, but you know, I think the, the key thing is to pick a diet that really works for you because, you know, we know with leptin, particularly our fat produces leptin. Leptin has a direct tie to appetite. It has a direct tie to metabolism. And so when we lose fat, we lose some leptin, and that actually helps increase your appetite a bit, and it also lowers metabolism just a bit. And uh, the one research I I cite from Columbia University, they find that people who've lost weight actually have to eat less than someone who's naturally at that target weight to begin with. So say someone who's at 170 pounds and has lost 20 pounds to get to 150 pounds, they have to eat about 22% fewer calories than the person who's naturally at 150 pounds to begin with. So there's a bit of a caloric penalty once you do lose some fat. Uh, And interesting, I talk about some research uh, on liposuction, where even when people have it surgically removed their fat, they get that same effect. They they have a, a lower metabolism after that. And so whatever diet you pick, it's not like you can be on it for six months and jump off and go back to your life. You have to find something that's going to work that you like for the long run and then, you know, add exercise in slowly to that as well. That's one of the problems with the ketogenic diets, and and I'm I'm a huge fan of cyclical ketosis, especially for women. Mm-hmm. And I I gave a keynote this year at the American Academy of Anti Aging Medicine, which which is a huge honor because I'm not a licensed physician. I'm kind of the opposite of that. I'm an unlicensed biohacker, and and so right. I shared the stage with Dr. Perlmutter and and Dr. Ludwig, who both recently published big books about fat, and. I asked this audience of anti-aging physicians, all of whom can spell ketosis, all of whom have read the literature, how many of you have been in ketosis? The whole room goes up. How many of you are in ketosis now? 10%. And Uh I do this at health conferences all the time, and it's exactly what you're saying. To be in ketosis forever requires a huge commitment, and I'm not sure that it's it's necessary or even beneficial. So so you talked about blood sugar. I have an implantable uh, blood glucose monitor uh, on my arm right now, and I had rice with sushi for lunch, covered in brain octane, right? And I'm at 4.9, so my, my postprandial blood sugar is very acceptable. This is the equivalent of somewhere around 95 or 100 in the American metrics. Okay. And so like, it's totally possible. You have a little bit of carbs, but it's not a full ketogenic diet, and if I was to stick my finger, I'm probably around 0.4, 0.5 on ketones. For people listening, 0.8 is the level where you're in nutritional ketosis. But in the literature that I cite in in my new book, Headstrong, by the way, orderheadstrong.com. I would love it if you guys pre-ordered and I'll give you a big coupon for Bulletproof if you order before it launches. But 
the the cool thing about 0.5 is that's what resets your ghrelin so that your ghrelin levels, this is your hunger hormone, will match your current body weight instead of your fat body weight. And, and this is why I think you've had some time losing weight and then gaining it back, same as me. I, I'd say I've lost 100 pounds, I've probably lost two or 300 pounds because you lose 20, gain 30, you lose 30, gain 40, and you just always do this. And it's a ghrelin and a CCK um, uh, problem and ghrelin precedes leptin, which precedes insulin. And, and we have all this crazy stuff that's affecting what in your work is, is an organ there. Um, let, let's go back a little bit though. A lot of people have shame about fat, and you yeah. write about this in your book, which is also really valuable because you're not talking about just biochemistry, and you talk about Newt Gingrich. And yes. when Barbara Walters interviewed him, you actually quote him in your book, and they asked him, what do you like least about yourself? And he's like, I'm most embarrassed about my weight. So here you have this yeah. you know, powerful government person. I would have said the same thing uh, years ago, and to be perfectly honest, I'm generally happy with my weight now. Like sometimes I have more inflammation or less. I still have stretch marks when I was fat. I'm not really happy about those. I, I even wrote a book about how to not get them, but you can't reverse them once you get those. Right. So talk to me about your own path. Like, like what, did, what made you do this book? Because you're a McKinsey consultant. You have an MBA yeah. from Wharton, same school as me. Like you came at this as a hacker and a problem solver. So tell me your story about fat. Yeah, sure. So I've always gained weight just exceptionally easy. Even as a child, I gained weight quickly. And I, I noticed my friends would be really skinny, you know, and yet when I wore a bikini, I was, I was softer. And uh, those problems just became more pronounced as I got older. So, you know, we get more stress, you know, certainly going to Wharton and McKinsey is very stressful. Yeah. And you have less time to even think about what you're eating. You're eating snacks, you're eating takeout, you keep going. And, you know, so through the years, I gained some weight, uh, just starting a career. And then I had children. And I think I gained about 10 pounds, you know, with every, every pregnancy, like a lot of women do. And some of the old tricks I was using, they just weren't working that well anymore. And all the while I struggled with fat, I would notice people who could eat whatever they wanted to and not get heavy, honestly. I mean, people who could eat, you know, cookies, a bagel, whatever, and, and they really weren't gaining much weight and they wouldn't even exercise very much. And I remember when I was a, a PhD candidate, one of my advisors says, unless you have a really burning question, don't go into research. That research requires a lot of sacrifice. It's a lot of low paid postdoc positions. You have to have a burning question to get yourself through. And at the time, I didn't really have a burning question. So I transitioned from, uh, from research, from my PhD program into the business world. And that's when I went to McKinsey, you know, et cetera. Um, but I found when I was trying to lose weight and just having so much struggle with it, that's when I started to have this burning question about what is fat? Why does it behave differently on different people? Why can some people eat it, you know, eat food plentifully and other people really restrain quite a bit and they still have more weight? And I thought, you know, I'm going to understand this. If anyone can understand fat, I certainly can. I'm a biochemist by training. And so that's when I decided I'm going to, I'm going to really take this on. And that's when I spent the five years really just pulling out all the scientific literature on fat. Um, you know, what is it? What's, what's, what does the research world know about fat that I don't? And I talked to a lot of people. I talked to a number of researchers around the world. I talked to their patients as well. And then I talked to, uh, to doctors and even obesity clinic uh, experts, too. And then what I just found out, it was, it was really interesting. And what the research has helped me do is that, you know, really knowledge is power in a way. And the first part of the scientific method is observation. And my observation <laughs> is my fat is weird, right? For one, I'm <laughs> gaining it. I'm gaining it so easily compared to other people. And it's a little softer, you know, it's, it's rippling. I can't go on a business dinner and not gain a pound compared to other people. So observation, if, if you have an observation where you think you're seeing something and you, it happens repetitively, it's probably real. And so having all the knowledge just helped me make sense of that. And I think I learned about the different ways we gain weight. 
So, you know, not only is fat in Oregon and something very sophisticated, but genetics plays a big part into how much fatness we have. Our gender plays a part. Uh, women are definitely predisposed to mm-hmm. weight compared to men. Um, as we age, our hormones decline. That has a big part of it, too. And then surprisingly, even bacteria and viruses will have yeah. a role in our fatness. So even though it feels like you're eating normally, you might be compared to what you know is considered normal, but you might have to really tweak your diet because of any of those components that affect our fatness. It's it's awesome that you said that that about. Well, it sure looks like this happens to me. How do you feel when when you know a, a naturally lean personal trainer says that that doesn't happen to you? It happens because you're cheating. Like basically, yeah. that that didn't happen because it can't. Like, how, what does that do to you when you hear that now? Yeah, that's just so funny. It, it's almost like you know, if we don't know the reason why something happens, it must not be happening. Like exactly. that's that's the equivalent logic. And yet, you know, I'm observing it's happening. And what's interesting is so many trainers, many of them have not ever really had a weight problem. They come from bodybuilding and they've always been lean and, you know, they're not necessarily up on the science of fat either. And so many of them are male. And yet I have this body where I have been heavy. I've had children, you know, I'm female, I'm, I'm very different. And I've worked with personal trainers before. And I think I really threw them for a loop. I think even they couldn't quite understand why their diet wasn't working for me. Like if I'm doing all these things, surely I should be losing lots of weight. The other thing I used to hear from them quite a bit is that you have to eat calories to lose, you lose weight. And if you don't eat a certain amount of calories, you're actually going to starvation mode. And, you know, as I did more research, that turned out to not be true for my body type. So what I could learn about myself is, you know, from all the research is that I have a whole bunch of things working against me. I mean, one is that, you know, certainly coming into middle age, my hormones are a lot lower. I don't have as much testosterone growth hormone as I did when I was young. But even more so, I think genetics are playing a part for me. Um, you know, my mother was very much like this. She really couldn't eat, you know, very much. And I think I, I kind of inherited that. And there are populations of people that have what you know is considered a thrifty genotype. They just they accumulate fat a little better, and they're also very efficient at with their energy. They don't burn as much energy. And I write about the Pima Indians, um, which is one you know well-known example of, of a population with this thrifty genotype. And I'm Eastern Indian, and uh, with the Pima Indians, uh, people think that it's those those famines they had through the centuries that that gave them this thrifty genotype. And you know, sure enough, India's had these same types of famines, so it doesn't surprise me if I have a thrifty genotype. Um, you know, and then there, there's a, a number of other things. Being female, I have a whole chapter on the difference between men versus women, and I, I have to really by go the into way, this. Uh, just in order for a second, that's yeah. why everyone listening to this should read that. Uh, one of the most popular blog posts I've written is, you know, the differences in the bulletproof diet and intermittent fasting for women versus men. Yeah. And it, it, this is missing from almost all weight loss literature. And you totally nailed it because you had a self-interest. So that's one of the things that stood out in The Secret Life of Fat and why I wanted to have you on the show. So just thanks for calling out that difference really clearly because there's lots of women listening about almost exactly 50% of listeners are women on Bulletproof Radio. And yeah. just so you guys know, like, I've got your back here. <laughs> I'm married to a woman. I have daughters. Like, this, this is no more or less important. It's just different. So I, yeah. I think you you kind of cracked the code just the way you wrote that was was impressive, right? And you know, women really interact with our with their fat differently. We use it differently. We partition more nutrients into fat. I mean, there's all of these these predispositions for fat that women have, and so you know, just depending on on your makeup, you know, what your age is, what your genetics are, what your you know gender, um, and then certainly you know the the virus's microbiome that also plays into, and that could be reasons why. Even when it seems normal, um, you know, you might be gaining more weight than somebody else. And 
I just say, you know, it's all good to know. And what it does is it helps. I think it can make you feel better. I always feel like I was failing on a diet. A diet would work for everybody, but somehow it wasn't working for me. Yeah. And what am I doing wrong? And trainers, as you said, they can be saying the same thing. Like, surely you must be doing something incorrectly. But having the knowledge, I was able to tweak a diet to make it work for me. Um, you know, I, I understood I just had to ratchet it up. I'm not normal, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. I've, there's enough things going on in my body that I just have to make a lot more effort than most people. The, the genetics thing is interesting. I've got a genotype where I'm optimized, I'm Northern European. I'm optimized to basically go into a town, get hit by an arrow or two so my blood clots quickly. Uh, and then basically steal everything and run away and live to tell about it and not and not die of the local plague. So right. overactive immune system and happy to go without food for a long time. So I store fat easily like you do. And right. that makes me super susceptible to environmental mold, which immediately affects leptin and causes me to gain weight. Like I can gain 20 pounds if you have me spend a weekend in, uh, in a moldy building. I'll, I won't gain it that weekend. It'll take me a week to gain 20 pounds. And, and I'm like, I have to buy new pants? Like what just happened? And it's inflammation and it's actually fat. Like it's a combination of them. But knowing that there's a genetic difference between you and me and everyone else and knowing even the distribution is, is, is powerful knowledge. Yeah. And, and you talked about viruses. Can you talk about the fat virus? Is that something you're up to speed on? Yeah, yeah. So, I you love know, that's this thing. Interesting. That's, it's always very shocking to people to hear that viruses have a role in fatness. But it's actually been known about for some time. Uh, canine distemper virus has been known to cause fatness in mice. I think it's rouse-associated virus causes it in chicken. It was discovered in the 80s and, and pretty accepted. But when you talk about a virus causing fatness in humans, of course, there's a lot of you know skepticism and worry with that. But I do write about the very interesting research and life of a scientist named Nikhil Durander who came from India. And uh, in India, he he noticed, um, or actually, he, he, there was a virus causing uh, of impacting the poultry industry. It was called SMAM1. But what was interesting is that this virus, uh, when they did necropsy of these these chickens, they had more fat, uh, which mm -hmm. was odd. He thought that was very odd because usually a virus will cause weight loss, not weight gain. And uh, he had, was running an obesity clinic, so he had a big interest in fat. And he decided to check patients for this to see if they've ever carried this virus or not. What he found was that patients who carried the SMAM1 virus actually had more body fat, almost by like a three to one ratio. Mm -hmm. And so he really thought he was onto something here and that there was the fatness was linked to this virus. And I think he did some some experiments with chickens where he would put one with the virus and without and put them together. And if the other chicken caught the virus, they would also <laughs> increase their fatness. So he decided to just quit everything, quit his obesity practice and come to the United States. And he wanted to study viruses and fat. And of course, when he got to the U.S., um, he had a very hard time getting a job on this premise because most people just didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. Um, but, you know, I think fate intervened in his life. He's got a very interesting tale to tell. And he finally did get a postdoc um, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he was finally able to do this research. Um, and he had to find a different virus to study because they wouldn't allow, the U.S. government wouldn't allow him to import the SMAM1 virus. But he finally did find this one virus, 8036, in the United States that has very much the same effect as SMAM1 did in India. So this virus, when people catch it, what, what they find is they tend to absorb more glucose out of their blood and they create more fat molecules. And they, uh, so the fat, so they, they have more fat molecules. The fat cells they have are getting bigger, but they also create more fat cells as well. Right through stem cells uh, turning into fat cells, so they overall have a higher propensity of fatness. And all the while he's researching this and, and going on, there's actually uh, one of his patients who's all the while is struggling with this, and they haven't met yet. But it's, it's someone who believes he got this virus in childhood, 
And he struggled with his weight for decades, and he just couldn't understand it, why he gained weight so easily. Um, you know, it felt like he was hungry. He tried to eat less, and even then he would be heavy. And he's finally referred over to University of Wisconsin for their educational program. That's when he meets Nikhil Durander, who does a test on this patient named Randy and finds out that he is positive for this virus, AD 36. Um, <laughs> the happy ending to this is once Randy learns about his fats and he learns how complex it is and through the educational program at University of Wisconsin, learns about leptin, learns about weight set points, learns about the virus and, and even bacteria and how that affects fatness, he really starts to feel empowered. Like it all starts to make sense why he's had such a struggle. And in a way, it gives him this kind of strength to, to just throw everything at his fatness to try to, to manage it. And, you know, happily, Randy's around, I guess he's six foot two. He weighs about 170 pounds now wow, at 63 thin. years of age. He's really lean. And so, you know, like I said, knowledge is power. And I think once we, you can't deny observation. You know, if you feel like you're eating more uh, all the time and yet you're heavier, there probably is something to it. And it could be any of these factors. And you know, I write about like four or five of these factors, and there might be even more out there, but it's a start to know how complex fatness really is, how weight gain is very individual for people, and just really about how, how sophisticated our fat is at even trying to fight our efforts to lose it. What this means uh, for you listening is that when you look at a fat person, uh, what I certainly learned as a former fat person is it's because they're weak, it's because they didn't try hard enough, and it's because they're obviously eating buckets of fried chicken and ice cream when you're not looking. Yeah. And there are people who do that for emotional reasons, and there are, in my experience, more people who don't do that and are fat and are feeling frustrated and they're feeling kind of helpless and, and feeling shame about it like I was. From like, I work out an hour and a half a day. And I can max out every machine at the gym and I still weigh 300 pounds and I'm still fat. Like, what's going on here? I, I don't eat anything and it, and it just sticks with you. And so like you, I, I managed to hack that. And it's, it, it's one of those things where the science is in. If you have the wrong bacteria in your gut, you can be fat. You have a virus, you can be fat. You have genetic changes, you can be fat, even if you do everything right. So when you look at someone who's fat, the automatic story you tell yourself is that it's because they're weak. It's not... It's, that's not how it is. Uh, and what it means is they're probably frustrated and they may be cranking tired because their energy balance isn't where it should be. That's one of the reasons I wrote my new book. Like, how do you get energy back in your head even if uh, you are fat? It doesn't really matter. Like, upregulating mitochondrial function matters. Uh, so just, like, like cut out the, the blaming and the shaming on people who have fat because there are variables that no one knew about five years ago or ten years ago that are controlling things. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about mitochondria for a little while, though. These are the, the energy storage cells and creation cells in, in our body, and they're present in brown fat. Yeah. In fact, some of my work is on how do you increase brown fat with cryotherapy and things like that. This is in the Bulletproof Diet. It's in Headstrong. And you actually write in your book that there are disadvantages to having too much brown fat. Talk to me right. about brown fat. Yeah, so brown fat, you know, is different than white fat. White fat will hoard calories. That's kind of its function, you know, as well as producing leptin, adiponectin, and other types of hormones. But brown fat, a primary role is to produce heat for our body. And so brown fat is brown because of the number of mitochondria it has. And mitochondria through oxidative phosphorylation, it can produce heat for us. And, uh, you know, it's considered a good thing to have. It certainly it burns calories. It keeps us warm. And like you said, cold exposure is something that can increase your level of brown fat. So there's actually something called beige fat as well, and that beige fat's capable of turning into brown fat. And exercise will also increase, it will turn that beige fat into brown, so it'll increase your deposits of brown fat as well. 
So cold exposure exercise will help increase those levels. Um, you know, there was one case, and you know, it's just a, a story about how something even considered good, right, considered beneficial for us, can actually go bad. And so I do give the story of Jocelyn Reese, who was a three-year-old in Britain, and she was born with just very high levels of brown fat, and they had to keep trying to feed her. Um, she went, she was, you know, born very underweight. They kept her in the hospital for a while. Um, but then also, uh, you know, when she went home, she just wouldn't gain weight. And finally, after six months, they brought her back to the hospital. And, uh, you know, she was two pounds, seven ounces. And she stayed in the hospital for a year. And they had her on intravenous um, infusions of glucose. They had her calorie count very high. And uh, this doctor who was a specialist in endocrine diseases it was just really stumped. And even after contacting everyone around the world who might have a clue, no one really understood what the problem was. And he finally did a biopsy um, of her fat tissue, you know, along with some other tissues, and he found that she just had extraordinarily high levels of brown fat. And so she was just burning off all the calories that they put into her all the time to the point that she couldn't gain weight. She couldn't develop normally. And, you know, unfortunately, this, this child passed away, you know, as a toddler, she wasn't able to, uh, to survive and thrive. But it, it shows you the power of brown fat, um, certainly. Um, but even, ha- you know, having too much of it is, is not a great thing either. And again, fat in moderation, so not too low overall, not too high. And even your brown fat levels, um, you know, that, that's a very unique case. I don't know that there's been too many of them in the world. But it's an example of how even a good thing, you know, can, can go awry if we have too much of it. It's unlikely that using any of the known techniques that any of us are going to get too much brown fat, in, at least in, <laughs> in my right. review of the literature <laughs> my experience. I wouldn't yeah. mind a little more. Um, I, I did use uh, a research chemical recently uh, that is not approved for humans uh, called, uh, let's see, it's a SARM, and it was, I think, GW501516 that increases muscle mitochondria by 50% in about uh-huh. four weeks. And yeah, hacking my mitochondria is interesting to me because I've always had like energy imbalances. Actually, I've mostly hacked them. But over the course of four weeks, I, I took that with some other stuff, but I gained about 19 pounds of muscle and I lost fat. I don't know the exact amount of fat I lost, but I had to buy new suits. It was really irritating because I wasn't trying to put on muscle like I'm married, like I like how I look. I want right. to be almost muscular, but not too muscular because I'm planning to live to 180. Um, but what I noticed from the increase in mitochondria was that I was just throwing off heat. I didn't increase my protein intake or anything, but we're having an unseasonal snowstorm. It doesn't even snow where I live, and there's two feet of snow on the ground. I'm like, T-shirt's fine. Just walk around, and I'm, I'm just huh. like radiating heat. So I believe my mitochondria count went up, but I haven't drilled any of my muscle out to find out. I wonder, is there something we can do for fat, like a, a magic thing other than cryotherapy that will get us a little bit more brown fat so we could enjoy a little bit more sugar and just burn it right off? Oh, Give me the hack, Sylvia. <laughs> the hack. Well, you know, cold exposure, I'll tell you what, after I did that that research, my, my husband started swimming in our very, very freezing cold pool every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, he's able to eat more than he already could, you know, because of that. So, you know, again, that gets the cold exposure. Uh, the other, you know, hack really is just it's exercise, um, you know, so so running and some strength building. There are, there's some research now, but it, it's too early, where they're actually trying to grow brown fat or do fat, a brown fat transplant. Oh, cool. um, yeah, so in mice, they've done that, and certainly it, it helps them lose weight. And I think there's one person in Australia who's even growing stem cells, you know, in, in a dish, fat stem cells, and, and having them, you know, turn into brown fat and, and re, reinserting that into humans. So that's all out there. 
But, um, you know, that drug sounds interesting, but I, I can't help but think there's some some downside, some side effect too, or you didn't sense anything. It, I mean, you. one of the side effects, it, it, it made me better looking. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I, uh, no, everyone else go to YouTube and check. No, I, I, I don't, I looked at it, and as far as I know from my research, having more healthy mitochondria yeah. only does good things to you up to some upper limit that I'm not going to hit. Yeah, uh, so for me, it, it actually it, it made a really positive difference for me. Uh, but it is a research chemical, and we'll, we'll know in a while. Huh. Uh, the you mentioned something interesting about taking fat stem cells. I've had fat taken off of my I don't know, of the kidney area uh, via liposuction, and then cultured, and I've had bone marrow uh, taken as well, cultured uh, for stem cells. Yeah. And I have about twenty five doses of stem cells banked. I've injected them into my brain. I've injected them intravenously into my face and pretty much every site of injury on my body there is. So we're not mm-hmm. injecting the fat, we're injecting the stem cells that live mm-hmm. in fat. And it turns out there's 10 times more stem cells in fat than there is in bone marrow. That's right, yeah. And what's your take on the role of fat in stem cells? You know, it could be a whole new role for fat and another you know bit of, of research that helps us view fat in a favorable manner. So adipose-derived stem cells are actually getting more usage now because it's an easier access to stem cells compared to bone marrow and other things. And uh, they are starting to get used. I mean, certainly for cosmetic reasons, I've seen them use injections into wrinkles to give people a smoother look on their face. Um, But there's also research where they're using it on bone fractures and it helps bones heal because it is a stem cell that's more potent. They can turn into different tissues. I think it was Rick Perry, um, the governor of Texas, who I now guess heads energy, um, but he had a, a back injury, and he had stem cells injected into his back, and he was very happy with the result. And you know, it wasn't an approved therapy, so I think he got some trouble for this. But it, it, there's a whole, you know, who knows? Like we went from hating fat. Actually, we went to loving fat. It was like around the Civil War time, right after that, that Americans actually loved fat because there wasn't enough of it. There wasn't enough food. And so culturally, we went through a period where fat was a status symbol, and there was a fat man's club. Yeah, live off the fat of the land, right? Like that, that's- <laughs> yeah. And it was around the 1900s when it turned into that, that fat became a bad thing because now food was more plentiful. People started getting fat and there was all this caution about, well, they're getting too fat. So religious leaders thought it wasn't pious to be fat. You know, military leaders thought it wasn't strong to be fat. And that's where a lot of negative connotations started being introduced into into what fat is. And the, the term like fatty and slob, fat slob, these things all got introduced at this time, the early 1900s. And we're still kind of in that period where fat's not just fat, it's a judgment now. Mm-hmm. And as we learn more about fat, I mean, one, that it's an organ, that it's vital to our health, that we can't live without fat. And I, I have a couple stories in The Secret Life of Fat about people who couldn't make fat for some reason, or they had fat, but it was defective fat. And just the huge impact it had on their health, like just all over on their health. Um, so, you know, we're, we're learning about how sophisticated fat is, but we're also learning that it might be very useful for medical things like getting stem cells out of it. So uh, hopefully what this knowledge does on what fat really is, is it helps us appreciate it, you know, for one, um, it is doing some important things and it might have some great uses for us in the future. And who knows, you know, Newt Gingrich might not be so embarrassed about his fat uh, as we learn more about it and, and what it's really doing for us. What about the type of fat that we eat? Uh, what yeah. what role does th- does that play? Because I mean, I talked about the bulletproof ghee, and I'm a fan of egg yolks. The whole bulletproof diet is like saturate me, baby. Yeah. For someone who's listening and hasn't yet bought the Secret Life of Fat, someone who's dealing with twenty pounds or more of extra fat, what would the first piece of advice you have for them be? 
So I think the the first piece is, you know, first, don't despair. There's a lot of people in this situation. I was certainly in this situation. Um, Fat loss can be achieved. I think you have to really understand your fat and what you're up against. Um, And don't just go for what's easy. This won't be easy. Um, And I just have to say that off the bat. I know a lot of people really, they want, you know, some of this easy diet advice, like, well, you know, you just leave out this food and you'll lose weight. You can eat this herb or you can eat this special food and lose weight and you'll never be hungry. You'll have all the foods you want, et cetera. It, It makes for great selling of diet books. But at some point, we really have to face the truth about what fat is, you know, why it is difficult to lose, why we feel hungrier, how our metabolism gets lower because of leptin changes, et cetera. Um, and if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to really take, you know, the hard step of understanding your fat and being willing to fight with it at its own level, right, and it's quite sophisticated, if you can persist, you can certainly win. But it might be harder to do than you thought. You might have to throw more effort at it than you first thought. But if you're willing to do that, it will, it will be successful. The other thing to know is that even though this seems really hard in the beginning, is that it gets easier with time. So I do also have a whole chapter on the psychology of losing weight and building kind of habits, building up our our willpower and self-control so that we can stay on whatever diet it is we pick. Anytime you make a change to your life, whether it's just to be more punctual, say, or it's to be tidier, you know, it requires long-term behavioral changes. And they're pretty hard to do at first, but you can build up that muscle, if you will, you know, by starting on small acts and graduating to larger ones. And one example I I give is, um, you know, a gym experiment where they paid people to go to a gym eight times in one month. And then they paid another group of of people to go to the gym just one time. And the people who they paid to go eight times after that month is over, they just continue going to the gym. It's become habit to them now. So the hardship is over. It required some real incentive, like money for them to get going to the gym. But once they did it, it it was, uh, you know, it became second nature. Um, There are things you can do to make it easier. I write about something called temptation bundling, where we pair a want activity with a should activity and it makes it easier to do. Um, So one one experiment done is where they give people an audio novel, a very juicy audio novel, but they can only listen to it at the gym. Another group, they give them an audio novel, but they can listen to it whenever they like. Um, people who could only listen to that audio novel at the gym actually go to the gym much more often. So that that pairing of it, um, you know, really helps them. In fact, they they offer their own money at the end of the experiment to keep go to keep the uh, audio novels away from them, so that they only have it at the gym. It, is so, there is there an app for that? It seems like like a really good like a, an app that has a GPS thing. If you're not in the gym, it won't play this one book. Like, <laughs> some entrepreneur another, listening, make that. You'll probably yeah. make a few bucks with that. <laughs> another business idea. There is an app called Stick.com, which is um, you get an incentive, like a, you know you say what incentive you want if you you reach your goal. But then if you don't reach your goal, you can have an anti incentive, meaning like they'll do something you don't want them to do, like give money to the opposite political party or something like that. So that's another <laughs> you know kind of reward. But there's, I, uh, there's also Manish uh, Sethi has a company called Pavlock uh, that I, I'm an investor in. And okay. if you don't work out, it shocks you. Like it has, it's like a little shocking wristwatch. So oh, anytime wow. you have a, a habit you don't want, including smoking or anything, it's sort of that old trick of snapping a rubber band. But there's people who have stopped you know, compulsive eating using that because your nervous system dislikes the shock more than your, ra- or more than your rational mind dislikes it. So it's sort of like, I guess I won't do that behavior anymore. And the, the internal desire goes away. So that, that's sort of the, if you didn't work out and what you're doing there is you're pairing, you get to listen to a, a novel and if yeah. you don't go, something bad happens that you don't like. So you're tipping it in your favor. I, I like the way you're thinking there. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, just staying out the long term, it will get easier. I know when I did intermittent fasting at first, it was really hard. And I write a chapter on, on my own experience. And I used to crave foods like crazy when I first started, especially at night as I got hungry. But I'll tell you, after six to eight weeks, I didn't feel it much anymore. So your body adjusts to what you're doing, your mind adjusts to what you're doing. So for people who have those 20 pounds, I mean, no, number one, it can be done. Um, number two, it might be a bit more effort than you thought it was going to be. Don't listen to the siren songs that this is easy if you just buy this book or eat this food. Um, you might have to put some some more effort, ratchet up the effort. And then third, know that it gets easier with time and you can maintain it. Now, I've got to ask you, uh, Bulletproof coffee and intermittent fasting, Yeah, you've, you've tried it? I have. I have. I like Bulletproof. My husband's very big on Bulletproof coffee. I actually have to, I have, I get headaches, so I take very small amounts of it, but uh, he, he loves it. We have it in the house. So you do do it. And, and I, yeah. I found the same thing with intermittent fasting. That was one of the things that created the Bulletproof uh, idea of, of intermittent fasting, where yeah. sometimes you just eat nothing for breakfast, but sometimes having just fat keeps your insulin completely flat. But uh, for me, it made insul- it made intermittent fasting completely effortless. Even though, yeah, right. I'm getting some fat, but but the 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 mechanisms of fasting remain in place. At least all the non fat related ones do. Yeah, and I, I think people have said, you know, they feel sorry for me because I'm I'm not eating at night, or how weird, you know, to have your kids eat dinner and you're not eating with them. And there's all kinds of ways to do intermittent fasting. I know people who extend their day fast so they don't eat till one o'clock or so in the morning, but then they'll eat dinner. They'll eat something at six o'clock or so. So there's a, a different range of, of doing intermittent fasting. Um, and so I think you can make it work for you. And it really isn't as bad uh, once you get into it. And it's extraordinarily effective. Um, you know, I have very stubborn fat, and I found intermittent fasting just busted right through all of it. How about, quote, non-intermittent fasting, you know, going a couple days on just water or even five or ten days? Yeah. Have you ever tried that? What's your take on that? Yeah, I tried it, you know, a couple times. It, it gets too much for me, I think, because, you know, I'm fairly busy, you know, in, in the daytime. And so I haven't had much success with it, at least. I think there's probably a, a way to get more attuned to it and, and get into that. But, you know, for me, just the, the rhythm of the intermittent fasting every day where I know what to expect every day, I know what to do and can plan for it. That works really well for me. So I've, I've stuck with intermittent fasting because I find it effective. I uh, I do too. I quite often do it. I yeah. usually eat my food between one or two and seven ish. Yeah, and that's kind of where where I do it. I just don't want to eat before then. Uh, but I also know a lot of people who just get religious about intermittent fasting. That's all they'll ever do, and especially women. After a couple months of that, without a break, sometimes they get adrenal dysfunction. They just get really tired, or their sleep quality goes down, and that's why sometimes mixing it up a little hmm. bit helps. Okay, right, and it. It very much depends, but I, I've noticed that trend, you know, uh, zero calorie intermittent fasting for long periods of time uh, can cause hormonal imbalance. Not always, but sometimes. Hmm. Uh, and men yeah, don't I know seem to mind it. When I get, if I get uncomfortable, you know, at night or so, I'll have a handful of nuts or cheese. I always keep it to where it's not something that's so hard to do that I just can't get through it. So I don't know that I do really strict intermittent fasting. It is for certain hours, but like mm-hmm. around six or seven I really have to cheat. It's it's still better than uh, you know having my full dinner or not doing it. So uh, it works still. And I think the other interesting thing is that not all foods affect people the same way. And uh, you know you're probably aware of that research out of Israel now at Weizmann Institute where Aaron Segal is testing blood sugar responses to foods of various people. And what he finds is that some people can eat something like chocolate or 
you know, alcohol, and they don't get a really severe blood sugar spike. Whereas other people, they can barely have any of that, and and they, you know, they'll get a, a very big blood sugar spike afterward. And so foods don't affect everyone the same way. And in the end, uh, you know, what I did to tune a diet is I, I just had a spreadsheet and I kept very detailed log about what I was eating, what time I was eating, um, overall uh, nutrient intake, you know, for, for each meal. And that's where I came upon really that this intermittent fasting was working. I noticed when I ratcheted back the hours from nighttime, uh, you know, if I stayed around three or four, I would lose weight. But if I ate at six, I wouldn't. But I also noticed that there were some foods that were supposed to be terrible to be eating and so against, you know, weight loss. But I could eat them and it wouldn't really have an effect. And so, like, say, like straight chocolate, I can have a little bit of at lunchtime and it doesn't really seem to make me gain weight. But a chocolate cookie or brownie will make me gain weight. And so it just depends. I also noticed that a little bit of nuts or cheese, like even in the, in the fasting hours of six or seven o'clock, as long as I'm not having a lot of it, it's not really affecting my weight loss. So everyone is really very individual, and I would just encourage people to really monitor and track what it is you're eating and when, and you'll start to correlate what's helping you lose weight and what's not, and consider timing as much as you are your food content in that uh, in that flow. I, I have a theory about different people's response with blood sugar to those things, and it's only come out in the last little while because I have this implantable um, blood sugar, uh, blood glucose monitoring thing where I can just track my number whenever I want to. Right. I'm exceptionally stable all day long, but if I accidentally eat a food either that contains a toxin or something that I'm allergic to, hmm. my blood sugar will go up dramatically. And from a fight or flight sympathetic response, what do you do when there's a threat? Well, you flood the body with glucose so that you have energy to run away from the tiger. And I believe that in some portion of these people, especially things like potatoes, which for 20% of us are nightshades that have lectins, they actually stress the mitochondria. Lectins cause damage to mitochondria in people with that type of genetics, but not others. So the body's like, I'm under threat. Give me some sugar, baby. And there's something going on there. I also ate some uh, some food that had mold in it. Like it, it had been in the fridge for too long. I didn't know it. Huh. And I felt like crap. I know what I feel like when I eat mold. I'm highly allergic to it. And my blood sugar just went through the roof even though I didn't eat anything that should have spiked my blood sugar. So correlating these things, I think there's a toxin thing going on with fat storage and with blood sugar that we haven't yet elucidated because we think coffee is coffee, even though when you look at it on a mass spectrometer, this coffee has mold in it, this coffee doesn't. And the same thing for all these other foods. This one had glyphosate, this one didn't. And is the body responding differently because of something other than the food? There's like so much science to be done here. It's it's a fascinating time. Yeah, we're just in the beginning stages of this. I mean, it wasn't really, I think leptin was made known in the 90s, right? And so that's pretty young as far as studying different diseases. And I'm hoping as a taboo against fat kind of subsides and we start to understand it's much more than just a reserve of calories, we'll just start finding more and more. I mean, the one good thing about the obesity epidemic is it's forced more research dollars into fat and what causes obesity. And that's how a lot of these great discoveries are coming out. But, you know, in the end, we might find that, you know, some fat's not so bad and that there's a, you know, a certain level that'll, that'll keep us healthy, but we'll find out more about how fat is acting in our body. And as we're learning, it's just, it's much more sophisticated than people think. Fat has a lot of uh, defenses at its disposal to try to stay. So even though we want to lose fat, our bodies kind of don't. It depends on fat. And, uh, you know, one interesting thing I, I write about, too, is that fat can actually divert blood supply to itself. So just like tumors, I was in the, the world of cancer wow. for a while uh, in research. And, you know, tumors have a way of diverting blood supply to themselves. That's how they can grow and get bigger. 
And fat can do the same thing. In fact, when they give some of these these cancer drugs to people who are over, or not to people, no, to animals, you know, who are obese, they actually start losing fat. And so, you know, we're a way long way from from using any of those drugs for for humans. But it just shows you that that blood supply is, is another thing, how fat kind of sustains. Um, there's more directed blood at it to help it thrive and more pathways to deposit more fat even. So we have to think of fat differently, not just as a bag, you know, a Ziploc bag of a lot of calories, but as something thriving and alive and interacting with our bodies in so many different ways. What, what an awesome view of fat and, uh, <laughs> and, and enlightened and uh, enlightening just in that it lets people know that they have a lot more control than they thought they might have over their fat. Right. Well, we're up on the end of the interview, which means I get to ask you the bulletproof question from all the bulletproof radio interviews. Based on all the stuff that you know, but also just the path that you've lived, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, I want to perform better at everything I do, yeah. what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you tell them? Wow, that's a great question. That requires some thought, I suppose. I mean, number one, <laughs> I think, you know, is as attitude, really. First, know that you can do these things. So uh, they do this research on the National Weight Control Registry where they study successful dieters. And, and one of the things that really motivates them to stay on a diet long is that they've had some kind of really uh, epiphany, if you will. They've either had a health crisis where they're diagnosed with something and now they have to take this very seriously. Or they've seen a picture of themselves where they're at an all-time high weight and they just can't believe it. So these very same people who were you know, cheating on a diet or eating whatever they want from the grocery store, they're now so motivated that they they keep they lose the weight, they keep a log of their food, they exercise every day, and they can keep it off for years. And it's because of this epiphany, this one big event that changed their behavior completely. So, you know, if that can happen, you know, for them, those people, it can happen for anyone. Once you get your 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 mind in the right motivation, you're really aligned with the plan, all of that is possible. So I say, number one, if you really want to live, you know, this great life, know that you can, know that it's within your power to do it. Now, the other thing is that stay with, with the program that's going to help you do that. So again, it's the behavioral you know, modification. It's the practice of a habit. It, it's doing it long term. Don't just do it, come off, do it, come off. It's not really going to lead you to where you think it's, it's going to. And I guess the third part of all of that, uh, you know, the advice I give is that take breaks sometime. So all of what we're doing is not easy, right? Staying on a regimen is not easy. Staying well behaved is not easy. Every now and then we have to loosen up. And there's actually, again, research that shows that that's a good thing to do. I know healthcare workers, that they're encouraged to wash their hands all the time. And towards the end of the day, they stop washing their hands. They just get tired of doing it. But when they take longer breaks during the day, they stay with it. They stay on this their, their washing hands regimen. And you know, the same is very true for dieters. Like every now and then, you need to give yourself a break. The key is don't beat yourself up when you've had a break. So there's something called dichotomous thinking where when people have gone off a diet, um, they think all is lost. It's like the kind of mentality of I either got an A or I got an F. There's nothing in between. And people who have dichotomous thinking actually fail at diets much more than people who don't. And some of the really good obesity treatment programs, one of their real strengths is that they, they get people off of dichotomous thinking. So when someone comes off a diet and they come in for the weekly checkup, these doctors, um, and I write about one at Tufts University, it's very good, they help coach them back on. It's like, it's not a big deal. You went off. Well, you know, let's get back on. It's not the end of the world. And just that small change in the kind of, you know, acceptance, that kind of forgiveness of yourself helps people stay on for the long run. So really, you know, take into account the psychology of anything it is you want to do. You know, know that you can do it. Um, try your best to be really persistent in the plan. 
And then third, if you come off once in a while for a break, just, you know, be forgiving about it. Everyone has to come off um, and you're still a good person for all of that. And so I think part of it's self-love. We have to put back into ourselves when we're trying to do something that's very hard to do. Well, thanks, Sylvia. Uh, what a what an awesome answer. <laughs> thanks. If you've enjoyed today's interview, you could easily go out and pick up a copy of Sylvia Tara's new book, which is called The Secret Life of Fat. It's worth your time to read it. And you'll notice a trend on Bulletproof Radio where I find really interesting authors who've written books that are worth reading. Uh, there's an industry out there where you write a book because it makes you money, and then there's another group of authors who write books because they're meaningful and because they've, they have something to offer, and this book falls in the latter category, which is why Sylvia's on the show. So I would encourage you to go out and pick up The Secret Life of Fat because you'll learn something. And if you're into learning things, time for a quick bulletproof plug here, Headstrong, my new book. If you go to orderheadstrong.com, I will give you a coupon. As long as you order this before the book is released on April 4th, I'll give you a coupon for 25 bucks off the Bulletproof store. So it's a really good deal. That's orderheadstrong.com. And if you want to read about The Secret Life of Fat, it's called The Secret Life of Fat. You can get it anywhere books are sold. It's available today. Thanks for listening to Bulletproof Radio. As always, leave a great review. And if you want to say thanks for an amazing interview, buy both books because, well, we'd both appreciate it. Have an awesome day. Great. Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.